Good morning. I'm reading this morning from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Every summer we reflect on the Psalms. We meditate on the Psalms as a change of pace. Psalms teach us how to pray. They teach us how to meditate on God's word, how to worship him. Whatever our emotion, whatever our circumstance, there's an emotion, there's a trial, there's an issue uh, that the Psalms address uh, if, if you're diligent to look through them and to meditate on them and even to allow them to guide you in your prayer life. So we do that in the summer. So this Psalm really focuses on the benefits and blessings of confession, not a word we love to talk about, uh, but I'll begin with myself. So I think the first time, the first time I ever got a really bad grade in school. So I tried to do well in school. I was kind of a good student, and I cared about my grades, not always for the right reasons, but uh, the first time I got a really bad grade was in the seventh grade. And I hope you're listening if you're younger, because this may be good, good wisdom for you. So I was in seventh grade. I'll put a picture up. You just picture seventh grade, okay? Middle school, public school, middle school. But I think the first time... I got a really bad grade was in the seventh grade. I won't tell you what the grade was. That's immaterial for now. But I got a bad grade on my report card, and I, and I don't know what was worth, worse, getting that bad grade on my report card or having to tell my parents when I got home, and specifically having to tell my dad. It all began with a science test. It was biology in seventh grade for us. And I was a good biology student. I, had, I think I had an A in the, in the class throughout the year. But this one particular day, uh, the teacher was out, but she, she had sent a test. It was a major unit test, and a, so a sub was overseeing this test. And the sub was in a bad mood that day. I remember her. And uh, she was in a bad mood, and she handed out the biology test, and she said, if there's any talking, I'm going to take your test away. So naturally, I talked. I mean, I can't, you know, it's... Obvious, Brian always has a hard time shutting his mouth. So it was even more so than when I was a kid. 
We started the test, and not more than a few minutes into the test, I start talking, the kid behind me and I start talking. I don't remember why. It wasn't to share answers. We start talking, so sure enough, the substitute teacher comes along and takes our tests away. And she wouldn't give, she wouldn't give me the test back. So I sat there the whole period. I, I may have, maybe had answered one or two questions. I don't even think I did. So later on, the, the, the teacher comes back, like the next week or something, and she hands out all the, the papers, and she hand, handed me back my science test as a big, fat zero. She wouldn't, let me, she wouldn't let me take the test again. That was it. My grade was a zero for talking. So... I didn't say anything at home for, for weeks and weeks. My parents, how did, what happened with that? I kind of had, they're not in the room right now, but I kind of had helicopter parents. So, <laughs> so, so um, yeah, yeah, they, they know, they know. So I, they kept asking me for weeks, how did you do on that sign test? What, what happened? What was the grade? And I kept, I was so afraid to tell them. I kept coming up with answers, with excuses. Oh, yeah, uh, the teacher was sick. We haven't gotten it back yet. Uh, she lost a few papers. Uh, I kept, you know, we had to retake the test. I kept saying things to stall. But the moment of truth came when weeks later, the report card came to me and I had a bad grade for the entire quarter because that zero took everything way down, took my average way down, and now I had to go home with my report card and tell my father not only the grade on the report card, but that I had been lying for weeks. And I, I, I think what was truly worse, the worst thing about all of that was the agony I put myself through my body, my mind, my emotions, I lied. Well, first of all, I was stupid for talking during a test. Uh, and, and, and I just felt, I felt dumb. I, I had this shame. I was ashamed that I got a zero for talking during a test. But then I felt guilty for lying and lying and lying and lying. And so my lying led to stress and my stress led to misery for weeks and weeks and weeks until I finally had to tell my dad and I was absolutely petrified to tell him. Now, when I did tell my dad, I actually discovered that he was patient and gentle and forgiving that time. <laughs> I was so afraid to say this to my dad and actually he was generous and he was gentle and... Um, and I saw how much he loved me. Now, it, 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 it wouldn't have changed the fact that I was stupid for talking and still got a big fat zero. Uh, didn't, but, but my mind and my body were in agony for weeks, afraid to be honest and tell the truth. And so David writes this song. He writes this psalm about his own experience about confession. And he says in verses three and four, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, now he's talking to God, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David's own silence about some bad stuff that he had done was in reality torture for him. His silence was torture for him because he knew that he was guilty. 
If you've ever read Dostoevsky's uh, famous novel, Crime and Punishment, uh, the character Raskolnikov, he commits a terrible crime simply because he can in his pride. And the moment after he commits the crime, he's absolutely petrified. He's taken by his own guilt. And day after day, his life is consumed with the weight of his guilt and the fear of being found out until finally he is humbled and freed by the process of confession. And the point I want to try and make today, uh, based on Psalm 32, is that when we have sinned, the very thing we're afraid to do is actually the first thing we must do, confess. And so David says in verse 5, after his misery, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The Christian understanding of confession leads to healing. Confession leads to healing because it allows us to know and experience God's forgiveness. The ultimate point of confession is not shame, is not retribution, it is healing forgiveness. The blessed life, because it begin, the, the psalm begins with the words, blessed is the man, like Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Here's another one, blessed is the person. Another way of saying it is happy is the person who is a forgiven person. That's what verses 1 and 2 communicate. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And David says, blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now here we see the key message of the Bible itself, that God saves sinners. A holy God, a righteous God, a perfect God saves sinners. Now what we would expect is something like this. Blessed is the one who is perfect for keeping all of God's laws perfectly. That's, that's the way in our own nature we would think. Blessed is the one who's a good boy, who's a good girl, who always tells the truth, who never talks during a science test. But it doesn't say that. Since we cannot keep God's law, not only in our actions, not only in our words, but even in our deepest hidden thoughts, since we cannot keep God's law, we live in misery, and we try to cover our misery, or we try and pacify our misery with things and ways and people that help us forget it, that help us drown the misery out with, with, with other things that allow us to cope with other types of panacea. But the only thing that releases us from the misery of our sin is God's forgiveness, and actually, the Apostle Paul used this psalm in the book of Romans. He used this psalm to prove that God doesn't save perfect people because there are no perfect people. Rather, Paul said, using Psalm 32, check out Romans chapter 4 when you have a, uh, some free time this week, God saves those who confess that they are far from perfect. And actually, the early church father, Augustine, uh, the North African church leader, he also, commenting on Psalm 32, said that this psalm enables us to understand that we are set free not because we've earned it. We're set free by God's grace 
as we confess our sins. Now, our natural response when we're in sin and when we know it is to hide. Is to hide from God as Adam and Eve did, but also we hide from one another, don't we? We hide from our creator and we hide from each other. Now, the benefit of confession from the Bible's perspective, the benefit of the process of confession that leads to the forgiveness of God, that process of forgiving God, it becomes our hiding place. And that's, that's how David puts it in verse 7. He says, you are my hiding place. Now, this is a guy who knows he sinned greatly and was in agony while he was covering up his sin. And then he says, you are my, to God, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. By confession, we allow others to become a part of the solution to our problem. That's as intimidating as it might be. That's the beauty of confession. We expand the circle of trust and allow people who can help us to enter into our misery, to enter, to enter into our guilt and into our shame. And at first you begin with God, the true judge, the only judge, the only one that has an opinion that matters regarding your sin and the guilt and the shame that it brings you. We bring God into the circle first so that he would forgive us, so that he would cleanse us. We only can begin with God. And second, we bring other people in, people we can trust, to assist us in making things right. And the Bible, specifically the New Testament, calls that, they use the word repentance. It means thinking differently so that you can act differently. We bring other people in in confession because they can help us heal. They can provide the help, the perspective, even the accountability that we need in order to change. And actually, the New Testament author, the Apostle John, and you, we read this together earlier this morning, he brings these two ideas together, bringing God in on the situation and bringing others in on the situation. He puts those two concepts together when he said, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all sin. You see right there, the forgiveness of God and the fellowship, it was a business word in the New Testament, it meant partnership, not only the forgiveness of God, but the partnership of others in turning away from our depravity toward consistent lasting healing. So run to God. If, whether you're like in third grade or fifth grade or seventh grade and it's something like a science test that you're lying about or whether you're much, much older and it's much more a nuanced sort of thing and you're aware of it and you don't know what to do with it but you feel like a prisoner, run to God. He's the only safe place in which you confess your, your, in which you can confess your sin and be forgiven and get help. The things we do to cover up for ourselves, the things we do to deny our sins, our mistakes, our culpability, the things we do to forget, the things we do to deflect, the things we do to debate our way out of taking responsibility for something, these are false hiding places. 
I want you to think of something that you think is a shelter and it turns out to not be a shelter at all. It turns out to be a prison. When I lied about that test as a kid, it wasn't the bad grade. It was my dishonesty that trapped me where I was. And I felt, I felt guilt for lying to my parents again and again and again. And I felt shame for talking during a test and getting a zero. Guilt and shame working together to trap me where I was in my dishonesty. False hiding places never bring healing. They only isolate you further and further from God and from other people. The teacher in Proverbs chapter 28 said, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You know, you can get away with a lot in this world, and some very successful, powerful people do get away with a lot. And the Psalms talk in agony about that. Why do the wicked prosper? But the world's definition of prospering and God's definition of prospering are two very different things. And so the proverb says, when you conceal your transgressions, you will not prosper in the way that truly matters. But you will prosper when you confess them because prospering has all to do with obtaining the mercy and the grace of God. God promises forgiveness. He promises He's not like, well, maybe you'll get forgiveness if I'm in a good mood. He always promises forgiveness because he always has it to offer. I'm a sinner. And as a dad, I'm a sinner. And when my kids come to me with stuff like this, sometimes I'm gentle and gracious and patient. And sometimes I'm not. Just ask them. They're in the room somewhere. But God is a father who never runs out of patience or kindness for his children because of what the author of Hebrews said, talking about Jesus Christ, God's only son, if you're a Christian, your big brother. Talking about Jesus Christ, Hebrews said, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrificing himself. That is why God always has an unquenchable store of forgiveness for you when we come to him and humbly confess and acknowledge it. Because Jesus took your guilt for your sin as a lawbreaker before God, because Jesus took your guilt to the cross. In the presence of God, you're forgiven. You're always forgiven because of what Christ already has done. Because Jesus also took your shame, your shame to the cross in God's presence, you are always loved. You are always accepted. You are always looked upon with joy. God is always proud of you because Jesus took your shame to the cross and he killed it on the cross. The guilt, the shame, gone forever because Jesus took them to the cross and killed them there with him. So in the presence of God, you are always forgiven and you are always loved and accepted. That is a true hiding place. It is the only hiding place when after you've sinned, you can be forgiven and reminded that you are loved. 
When we sin, the very thing we're afraid of is the very thing we must do. Confess it. Confess it to your creator. And as appropriate, confess it to people you trust who can help you heal. I think some of the reason we're so afraid is is because people get involved who don't have our best interest at heart. And they press down on our guilt and they expose our shame. We have to be wise. We bring something to God and we ask for wisdom. Whom, to whom do I bring this to? The Bible wasn't lying when the book of James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So run to God, your only hiding place. Receive his forgiveness. That's the first step towards healing. Then ask others, other sons and daughters who are all forgiven sinners as well. Ask others you trust to help you heal. And that is the word of God from Psalm 32 for us today. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a, it's a simple message that this song reveals to us, uh, but it's a deep one and it's a painful one. And Father, we ask, we ask for your help. We ask that you would impress upon all of us, whatever our age is, whatever our situation is, whatever we are tempted to do or not do or say or not say or think or believe or not believe, we ask for your help. We ask that you would reveal to us your goodness and your grace. We are terrified, Father, because you are holy and perfect and you seem distant. But Father, show us how you are also near how in your son, Jesus Christ, who is meek and gentle, who could have come to condemn us, but didn't, he came to save us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to be convinced of his goodness and his love and how he treated sinners. Help us to approach him in confession. And in his name, help us to approach each other. And in his name, help us when we're on the other side of a confession, when we're the one listening Help us to be gentle. Help us to remember that we stand forgiven in your sight because of your grace, not because we've earned it. May this be a safe place, Father, this church, this congregation, for sinners to receive the forgiveness of God and the patience and gentleness of his people. In your name, amen.